from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Friday the 25th, and I hope you have some exciting plans for the weekend. Going to get a little relaxing done and maybe also spend a little time with the family and also, of course, get a little work done and get ahead for next week because that's what us entrepreneurs do. I'm always incredibly productive during football season because I put on a game or two on Sunday and sit there and work almost all day on things and it's just been a habit of mine for many years and so i'm i'm ready for football to get back up and going anyway we have a fantastic show for you today first up we have lloyd lobo he is in the ai space and it's an amazing story of the american spirit american entrepreneurship I will share that story in just a couple of seconds. And interestingly, during the interview, he brings up the idea that entrepreneurs have a chip on their shoulder. I have not seen that book written, but I think that it's an incredible idea for a book uh, documenting that, that entrepreneurs have something intrinsically to prove to the people from their past and they want to do that. And a chip on their shoulder, I think, is just uh, a lot uh, an element that is very common in entrepreneurs. Let me say that. And then after that, Anastasia miles is with us, an incredible, cool product. She has built. She lives high up in a condo tower and has a pet. And of course, pet doesn't want to go to the bathroom upstairs. And she has solved that with her city Lou. And it's a great idea. It's a really cool story of entrepreneurship. The ideation phase, we're going to talk to her about how she gets up in production and how she had her first sale, all of those things, and how the business is growing so fast that it's impacting the rest of her life and taking over uh, all sorts of aspects of her existence. And so, um, anyway, fascinating story and excited to share that with you. And then great stuff coming up all next week. We have Hotel World. We're going to talk about passion audio electronics. We have two number one best-selling Wall Street Journal authors and chocolate all next week. My first guest today is Lloyd Lobo. He is the CEO and I think co-founder of Boost.ai. It is a really cool business that helps you find government work. He has also had a very hard life and we'll talk about that. Lloyd, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well, top of the world. Thanks for hosting me. It is our pleasure. Amazing life you've led. You also uh, were a young kid during the Gulf War and were a refugee out of Kuwait. Uh, it seems like you embodied the American spirit more than a lot of Americans that I meet. <laughs> what? I, I'm, I'm proud to hear that. Thank you. 
So tell us about the business. Tell us about uh, collecting government tax credits. Definitely. So globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given in innovation funding and tax credits to support businesses, innovative businesses who are developing new products and technologies or improving existing products and technologies. The U.S. government gives about $10 billion each year. The Canadian government gives 3 or $4 billion each year. All the Commonwealth countries do. But the problem with anything government is it's a cumbersome application process. It's prone to frustrating audits. And receiving the money takes a long time. So what Boast does is we integrate with the company's technical project management systems and their financial systems to figure out what work they qualify for, automatically apply for it, and give them the money. And we even do one better. We not only apply for it. When you apply for these government tax credits, you've got to wait a long time to get the money. So what we do is we front load the cash, we give them the money now so they don't have to wait. So not only automate the application process, but we also give them the money in advance so they don't have to wait to get back that money from the government. Very cool. How'd you have the idea and start the business? Take us back in time a little bit. Definitely. So my co-founder, Alex, and I were both friends in college. We were partners in every project. And after we finished engineering, I went off to work at startups. Alex went out to work at a large company. After that, he did a startup, and that startup didn't work out. And he felt he needed to get financial and accounting knowledge. His unique combination of engineering skills and finance accounting knowledge took him in the world of tax credits because now he had this unique perspective. You also understand accounting, and you also understand engineering, and this is what this program is all about. After working at a big four accounting firm, he comes to me and says, hey, this process is broken. It's manual. It's cumbersome. I want to go out and uh, do something in the space. I jumped at the opportunity to work with him because we were best friends. We're partners in every project. He's my daughter's godfather and vice versa. So I said, hey, what, you know, if we have the opportunity to build a company that we want to work for, I'm in. The problem was I had only worked at startups back in the day. My first job outside of university was... You know, although I finished engineering, the first job I took was in cold calling. I'd asked an entrepreneur, what's the best skill I could acquire if I wanted to be an entrepreneur someday? And he said, sales. And you know, I begged a startup to take me uh, and give me a job in, in, in doing sales. They wouldn't. So I said, you know, I'll dial for dollars and I'll prove myself. And I worked my way up there. The unfortunate thing with most startups is there's this hustle culture. And I ended up only working for hustle startups where you're working 80, 100 hours a week. And I was at the startup, I, I still remember, and it, it was the driving force for me to go out on my own, where I worked at like 9, 10 every day, which is fine. Uh, but one day I started going home at 6. And I get an email from the CEO saying, hey, I used to like it when your office is late, when you were in the office is late. Your wife is a physician resident who's working 100 hours a week. What do you have to go home for? The thing was, my parents were visiting me, and... Uh, I hadn't seen them in a couple of years. That's why I was going home at six. And that day when I got home is when Alex called me and said, hey, do you want to do this business together? And I'm like, if I can build a company that I want to work for, which is built on customer love and employee love, like treat your employees with love and help them grow and they'll treat your business with love and your business will grow. If I get to build a company like that, I'm in. And that's how the journey started. Wow. And so did you... Give that guy the finger as you left. Uh, and what did you do to start building the business then? 
Definitely. No, I, you know what? I don't believe in, uh, you know, burning bridges because I don't no either, but it's so life. fun sometimes. You know, um, I, I'll tell you a very funny story. Um, a lot of times people will spite you and I've talked to thousands of entrepreneurs as, as you have. And the one thing that's common that drives most entrepreneurs is this burning anger or spite to prove the naysayers wrong, to change the status quo, to do things that are different on their own terms. Happy people often don't drive change. People with spite drive a lot of change. So that spite uh, actually drove me quite a bit. And I'm thankful for that experience. And, and a lot of experience was where people overlook you. I'll give you, I'll give you um, another example is my mother-in-law never thought I was good enough to marry my, my wife. And she got into med school in her second year of undergrad without MCAT. And, you know, I barely, I, I didn't finish high school, but I finagled myself into, into engineering and I didn't do my master's degree. And I was told that I'd never be successful or make enough money. And so, you know, I could fight that and, you know, uh, curse and, and do all kinds of things, which you know, our wedding was called off a couple of days before we were to marry. <laughs> and I ended up in Thailand on my supposed honeymoon with my best man. And then nine months later, I, I planned uh, our dream wedding myself and we ended up getting married. But that spite, you know, a lot of that spite drove me. I did two failed companies in tech that, uh, you know, went south, both in the AI space. And then I did a, 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 I said, you know what, let's do something that makes money. We did an events company. The co-founder ran away with a quarter million in profits. We had to sue him. And then finally boast hit, but that spite kept me going. And so I think the best way to prove somebody is not to show them the finger, but actually do an action that, uh, that makes you stand out. And a couple of things actually from this incident, um, you know, relating back to my mother-in-law never thinking I'd be good enough is one, when we sold 52% of Boast and cashed out, made more money than either side of the family. And the other thing was I was always told that, um, you know, I haven't, I'm not educated enough, don't have a master's degree. Um, I will speak louder than words. But getting back to your question, how did we start the business? You know, when you're competing with big four accounting firms, nobody wants to talk to you. And, you know, we started by cold calling. Obviously, the, the simplest, easiest thing is cold call and, and see if the value prop resonates. Make a list of people that fit your target profile, figure out where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep, and, and pound the phones. Nobody would talk to us. So we said, hey, you know what? We're asking for very sensitive information and we don't have any credibility. And, and always the path to success goes in the direction of visibility, credibility, and profitability. We said, you know, we know a lot of people. Why don't we just host meetups? The people we're selling to are entrepreneurs who want funding. We need to build visibility and credibility with them. They respect a bunch of influencers who we know. We'll bring them to share their best practices on business growth at, in meetups, behind the scenes, how they build their companies, and get to interact with the founders. The first meetup we did, 10 people showed up. Word spread. We did that with consistency, more and more meetups. Those meetups started to blow up. Eventually, 200 people showed up at a co-working space and the GM of the co-working space says, hey, this is no longer a pizza night. This is a full-blown conference. That evolved into the traction community. And over the years, we kept doing more meetups, more webinars, conferences, and the compound interest on just doing that one thing consistently grew. And now we have over 100,000 subscribers. And as that community grew, the social proof for us as being two unknown guys 
to some of the biggest name CEOs coming to our events also grew. We got the brand rub of those influencers and people started doing business with us. Our revenues grew and we were able to bootstrap to $10 million in revenue. Wow. As a what function a cool of that story. one tactic, building that community. That's as, amazing. As, literally as a function together. of building that community. Where was this? Definitely. You don't, you don't think that way. This was, we started doing this in Calgary. I was in San Francisco at the time. My co-founder was in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So we started it there, but then we started scaling it in different cities. Like started doing these meetups in San Francisco. We opened an office in Toronto. We started doing meetups in Toronto. We opened an office in Vancouver, started doing meetups in Vancouver. So wherever we decided to have a geolocal presence, we'd figure out three things. One is who is the ideal customer? Who are we targeting? Who are the influencers? Who do they fund? Meaning what tools they pay for? Who do they frequent? What other events they go to? What magazines they read? And who do they follow? Who are the influencers? And we started inviting people and hosting those meetups. And, and we started doing that at a very regular cadence. And to augment the in-person meetups, we started doing online webinars. And so that one-two combo of the webinars and the in-person meetups gave us a lot of social proof and not only grew the community, but also grew our business because people are like, hey, they're offering a service that's valuable. We don't see big four accounting firms also providing us value beyond their paid service. This is like they're doing free events and bringing us tactical knowledge and network and connections. That is indispensable. And so they started doing business with us. Lloyd, I love the way you did that and were able to build the business and get the respect of the community. That's just an, an amazing story. Tell us about the book, Lloyd. Congratulations. Tell us all about it. From grassroots to greatness, uh, the positive thing is we just announced the pre-sale for the book, and I didn't even promote it to my newsletter list because all the Amazon links and everything to paperback and digital is not tied. And uh, it's already hit number one in a few categories just off of a LinkedIn and an Instagram post. It's number one in startups. It's number one new, new um, releases for business technology. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I think it's the power of the community. But the reason why I decided to write this book is my journey from childhood to now has community at its core. As a kid in Kuwait, I would visit my, parent, my grandparents in India. My, my mom grew up in the slums of Mumbai. And every time I'd go to India to visit the slums, it was the best time of my life. My grandparents had 10 kids, and they lived in this house. I can't even describe. It was like a shack. It had like maybe semi-concreted um, walls and like a tin uh, aluminum roof. Not many homes there had TVs. Everyone, like watching TV was a communal thing. We would play out. Uh, it, it would rain during the summer and puddles would turn into ponds. They would swim together, would eat together, would play together. And every time I'd go to Mumbai, I'd ask my grandparents, like, do you have some random person in the house? Like, why? And Mumbai is like the New York City of India. And, and they'd say something to the effect of the only way to create abundance in your life is to help other people without expecting anything in return. Fast forward today, none of their 10 kids are in that slum. They're all well off and their grandkids are also well off. And I think a big part of that comes from, from the karma they created. Then I went through the Gulf War and experienced two things, right? The, when, when I went down the building when the war took place, I saw the power of community very quickly 
a grassroots movement started to form and every building became a sub-community, started coordinating with each other to help over months evacuate people to safety. And uh, I understood entrepreneurship because what is entrepreneurship? Again, it is coming together around an idea and taking it to fruition while dealing with extreme uncertainty and risk. That was the Gulf War. What is community? It's coordinating with people and moving an idea forward with the power of people. So I experienced those, those two things and they became part of my DNA. I, I would create community. Then I moved to Canada years later, studied engineering, moved to the United States. And um, despite doing engineering, I took a job in, in sales because I understood that uh, from, from another entrepreneur, the best skill to ever have is selling. And I, I picked up a job cold calling, even though I was an awkward engineer, because you know communication is the rails of, of everything we do in life. You can't build community without knowing how to communicate. You can't build a company. And, and sales teaches you to polish your messaging and pivot on the fly and learn to negotiate. So, so I learned to sell. But you know, a big part of my learnings in sales and marketing came from the HubSpot inbound community. Because when I went from cold calling to another startup, I was supposed to be doing sales, but they didn't really have a product. So I had to figure out what to build and um, help them help convey that message to the engineering team and then build a website and market it. I had, to, I had to learn everything. That's what you do when you work at a small company. And everything I learned was from the HubSpot inbound community. They had this inbound marketing certificate. I started going to their events and that became my tribe. And then years later, when we started Boast, we leveraged the power of community to build the company, as I said. And then when I cast out of Boast and left the day-to-day operations, I felt like I lost my identity. I lost my tribe. I actually ended up depressed. And I hit rock bottom and I went on this quest of finding people because I had lost my tribe. And despite coming into money, I felt like, you know, it didn't matter. Right? It's, it's, I, you realize that, you know, it's not the money in your bank account is the people on your tombstone that matter. And I, I started doing crazy things. I started calling friends and saying, I'll travel to your city and we'll party or I'll fly you, you know, to Costa Rica or I'll fly you to Dominican. And, and I started traveling like crazy. And I still remember, um, I was in Romania speaking at a conference and around uh, after the conference, they had a speaker's retreat and we were somewhere in the boonies uh, three, four hours in Bucharest. And at 2 a.m., I'm frantically calling an Uber and the Uber isn't coming. The Uber isn't coming. And I tried for half an hour. Finally, an Uber comes and I tell them, stop, hold on. I go up, I pack my bags. I pull up my laptop. I book a flight to Costa Rica because some friends told me that they're in Costa Rica. And I wave goodbye to all the speakers. And they're like, are you crazy? Where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to Costa Rica. That's how insane I got because I felt I lost my tribe. And, and one day my wife looks at me and she's like, look at you. You never had anything. And today when you have the opportunity, you're destroying your life by moping about what you don't have. If something happens to you, your kids are going to be left holding the bag. And, and that night I couldn't sleep. And as I looked across the room, I see my Peloton bike and it had turned into a clothing rack. I dust off the clothes, I hop on the bike and um, I feel an instant connection to the instructor because she was coming off maternity leave and she kept saying, I feel weak, I'm, I'm not as strong. And then she yells out, self-pity is toxic. 
It's one shift, one crank, one rider on the block. I am, I can, with Eye of the Tiger from Rocky playing in the background. And that one ride, I felt so connected to the riders on the side of the screen, to the instructor, that it turned into two into three. And my health turned around. And finally, I came into all this free time. My health had turned around. And I started to look back and reflect. And I said, every time in my life when I was in trouble, it was the community. And I started looking at the world very differently and saying, hey, what's happening in 2023 here? Like, what's happening in, in 2021? Sorry, back then. Is marketing is, is going down the drain, right? People are frustrated with the same messaging, with being bombarded, um, giving personal data to access crappy white papers. The best brands don't do that type of marketing. The most iconic brands are in love with their customers and understand their customers' aspirations and help them become successful beyond the product or service. Like a Harley Davidson that almost went bankrupt and rebuilt the company around the ethos of community. And I said, powered by my personal stories from the slum to the Gulf War to building a successful business and then coming out of depression with the power of community, I talked to thousands of leaders community leaders, business leaders, I joined communities that I weren't, wasn't a part of, like a fly on the wall to observe. And I researched hundreds of iconic brands and I found this common thread, 13 common rules that they build long-lasting, sustainable brands with the power of community. And I said, this is a message that I need to tell. If I have all the free time in the world and I don't need to work and I sit here and hang out on the beach, I'm not doing a service to what's burning inside me or the people I care about. And so I felt this book needed to be written about. And, and there's this one really interesting theme, and it might be thought-provoking, but every obscure idea that eventually became like a religion or cult-like or became legendary, from Christ to CrossFit, has these four common themes. People listen to you, you have an audience. You bring them together, it becomes a community when they interact with one another. Now, when that community comes together to create impact, you have a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through rituals and rites of passage, it turns into a cult or a religion or an iconic brand. And every iconic cult-like entity that has gone from obscurity has followed that path from Christ to CrossFit. And so I wrote the book From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with community-led growth. It's on from grassroots to greatness.com or lloydlobo.com. There's an E in my name, double L-O-Y-E-D. Can you give us one or two of the rules, Lloyd? Definitely. So rule number one, which I found very, very common and, and it's, it's key, is you can't build a community if you don't embody the values of giving. For example, community-led companies are built on giving. So if you desire control, you can't build a community-led company, right? Community-led companies have six very common values, connection, autonomy, 
Mastery, meaning helping their people become better and better. Purpose, a purpose that transcends the profits or the product of the company. Energy, they, they create energy, energize people. And recognition, camper. I call it the camper framework. Anytime you institute camper in your culture, your community, you'll have happy campers. Connection, autonomy, mastery, purpose, energy, and recognition. That's rule number one. Figure out your camper. The next rule is figure out your people. Like, who are you serving? If, especially when you're just starting out, figure out an underserved niche. Identify their pains. Figure out where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep. What are their aspirations? What are their goals? People don't buy products. They buy outcomes. So figure that out. And once you have that ideal community profile, that ideal customer profile, then draw the circle of influence. Who do they follow? What other tools and services do they use? And where do they hang out? What events, what magazines, what platforms? This gives you a circle of influence when you start to create content to build that audience or when you start to bring people together, you know then you can invite this circle of influence to bring them together and your community members will feel like they're part of the founder tribe. The third thing is figuring out what kind of community you want to build. There's three kinds of communities. There's community of practice, which is all about learning together about a field and it's not about a product or service. Like the HubSpot community I talked about, I learned everything about marketing and sales from that community. It was called Inbound. It was learning about becoming better sales and marketing people. The other is community of product. This is turning customers into evangelists. This is learning about your product and how to use it. And the last one is community of play. It's about coming together and having a good time, like the Harley-Davidson bikers clubs, right? The, the Hogs community. If you don't have product market fit, if you don't have any customers, do not start a community of product. Nobody wants to feel like they're sold to. Start a community of practice where you help them reach their aspirations beyond your product or create a community of play. So those are the first three things you would do. Wow, great advice. You're easy to interview, Lloyd. I just wind you up and you go. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jim. This has been a great pleasure. Well, I appreciate you. And I just want to let everyone know that I blew it uh, and we had to have Lloyd back for a re-record for the second half. Unbelievably, a hard drive filled up in the middle of his interview. And so we had to start over and I appreciate you, Lloyd, giving us that time. Thank you so much, Jim. Looking forward to this. How do we find out more about you? Give us the URL one more time. From grassroots to greatness.com. It's simple. From grassroots to greatness.com or search for it on Amazon. From grassroots to greatness.com by Lloyd Lobo. But just go to the, the URL. From grassroots to greatness.com. Fantastic. Lloyd, thank you so much. Great stuff. And really appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much, Jim. And hey, this we'll was be, great. Hope this works. Oh, it will. We'll be right back in just a second to talk about a new uh, dog toilet thing. We are back. And again, thank you so much for being with us on this great Friday. And remember, if it's not great, we're going to make it great. That is our choice. 
I'm very excited to introduce another great entrepreneur. Please welcome Anastasia Miles to the show. She lives in the Seattle area, has done advertising sales for a big company there that makes software. She has a patent and has worked at Nordstrom. She has also been a longtime real estate agent and is very successful selling lake property there in the Seattle Bellevue area. But on the side, she has created an incredible product called The City Lou. You find that at thecitylou.com, L-O-O. It is a bathroom for your pets or inside the house while you're out working all day, I think. Anastasia, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Good morning, Jim, and thank you for inviting me. So did I describe the loo correctly? It's a bath, indoor bathroom for your pet. Well, it's indoor and outdoor. I originally um, designed it for myself, and um, having a puppy and living in high-rise, I was not attracted at all of getting up early in the morning and going out. I'm in Seattle. It rains a lot. It's dark early in the morning. And it also gets dark here in the winter about 4.30, which is not um, fun. Um, our city streets are not always that safe. And even if you have a doggy relief area in your um, high rise, they're not always um, sanitary. It's not always convenient if you're on a Zoom call and so forth. I was lucky enough to have a balcony and I was had a sliding glass door and I just put a dog door in there and I designed this um, enclosure for it. So my dog, I was up on the top, wouldn't get picked up it was small by an eagle. We have those here or um, fall off the balcony, which unfortunately can happen. So to keep her safe. So she would just simply go through the dog door, enter this enclosure, which is, I think, quite attractive. It has a lid and then come right back into the condo. Easy. I love walking her, but I have never had to walk her. And you just, to clean it, you just simply lift up the lid, pick up the solid waste or exchange out the grass or the potty pads. When I did that, found out um, I had friends that wanted one as well. So that's kind of how it all started. <laughs> so. Well, how did you get the idea in the first place? Because a lot of us have pets that we don't want to walk, but didn't have this idea. Uh, and let me explain it a little better. It's about a yard long, about two feet by two feet tall, about a foot and a half wide with a door. And it's mostly made out of acrylic panels. So you can see through it, got green AstroTurf on the bottom. And the dog walks in, does their business, and leaves. So how would you get the idea, Anastasia? Well, I um, love to solve problems. I have, in real estate, I'm always solving problems. When I worked with Microsoft, it was, and I just, I love a good challenge. And um, we're sitting there with a nice glass of wine and go, I can do this. We Our first version was just a kitty gate with plastic. And with the rain, it, that was not going to work. And so I've got a great handyman. I said, hey, I need an enclosure. This is what I need it for. And we did a drawing, and he um, brought it over to me. Matt, it was first year I tried to have it sold here in the United, and manufactured in the United States, which was very costly. And um, found um, a friend who I worked with at Microsoft, and her husband works with entrepreneurs, 
at three engineers and now it's being manufactured over in Asia and leveled it up quite a bit. We've won um, several awards. We got picked up by the Rolling Stones uh, magazine as the top 10 tech products for 2023. And it has just blossomed. My side hustle is now becoming almost a full-time hustle. Yeah. And it's, I'm selling a lot in New York and Chicago because it is so attractive and it keeps everything contained and sanitary. You know, you have your dog, the potty pad or the grass inside your condo, but it's, just sort of exposed. This keeps everything contained and sanitary and attractive um, for the um, end user and the family. So I'm not a pet person, Anastasia. So I have two Dobermans and two cats. And <laughs> uh, I, of course, inherited that or not inherited, but got that through marriage. Uh, my wife was actually yeah. very smart. When I asked her to marry me, it was right around uh, when she had just put a dog down. And so instead of her getting a new one, we got a new puppy and it immediately moved in with me. And so Sonny lived with us or, or lived with me for, I guess, six months before she moved in because we're old fashioned. She didn't move in until we were married, you know, because that's nice. the way yeah. we're supposed to do things. And so anyway, I, I had to take care of the puppy by myself. And I of course fell in love with it. And now I love my dogs as much as anything. I would take the dog over the wife. Um, (laughs) Well, my husband is kind of, you know, we hear that so much. My husband did not want a dog. Took me 10 years to talk him into letting me, you know, not not letting me, but agreeing to getting a puppy. And I had to overcome all these objections it had to be, suppose I have a miniature poodle. It had to be the second smartest, the second smartest dog in the world, they say. Everybody will argue that one. But it's hypoallergenic. It doesn't shed. And But I couldn't ask him to take the dog out for a walk because he didn't want it in the first place. Well, you know, guess where the dog sleeps? Next to him. Right. And Yeah, he loves the dog. So, um, yep hear that story all the time unfortunately your dogs are a little too big right now for the city loop that's what i was going to ask is it yeah. it's not doberman friendly is it it's more lap no. dog friendly well i've had requests but i'm just launched last november so i right now we have a standard size which accommodates dogs that are about 20 pounds and smaller and i've had requests for larger ones and smaller ones because I've had people with cats actually use it and to get the cat box out of the apartment or the condo or just keep everything contained and sanitary. I also developed a tray that you put underneath your potty pad in the grass that has um, a product called Silver Seal embedded in it, which absorbs 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria, which is a huge um, hit and a bonus, especially for those who um, don't have a patio to put this on. Great idea. Yes. So have you always been super creative like this and doing weird things on the side and always been like that? You know, I think so. Uh, When I was at Microsoft, we had a swimming pool in our backyard and my son was a toddler and the only place I could Fine for him to learn how to swim. They would put floaties on his arms. Well, I'm freaking out. It's not going to walk around all day with floaties on his arms. 
So I did some research and I found a woman down in Texas who had won this International Swim School Award, contacted her, what was she doing? How did she do it? Flew down there. My sister-in-law wasn't working and at a, um, my stepson's um, roommate was a state swimmer. So I bought her swim school method, brought it up to my backyard and um, ended up with 250 children a week in my backyard learning how to swim so, <laughs> without floaties. So, um, yeah, um, I guess I like a good challenge. And if there's, you know, there's got to be a way to solve a problem. And this is sort of what City Lou does. It solves a lot of problems. I've had college students take it to the dorms. Um, my daughter who lives right downtown Seattle, we had a lot of a lot of inner city problems all over the country and it's not always safe for her to take the dog out at 10 o'clock at night or a lot of different hours of the day and so um it's just a nice solution and, and during covid when we're all working at home and zoom calls it um solves um the uh, the problem of when your dog isn't on your zoom schedule when they have to go to the bathroom unfortunately <laughs> so it, it accommodates that too well brilliant so tell us a little bit more about american manufacturing versus asian i assume that's chinese manufacturing yeah. and how you were able to find someone in china talk to us a little bit about that do they send them unassembled and are they assembled do you sell them assembled or unassembled because there's a lot of air in there i wouldn't want to ship all that air uh, right well manufacturing here in the united states unfortunately and i really wanted to do that it was just not cost prohibitive it would have to, the units would have to be over a thousand dollars which you know i could sell a couple but it just didn't make any sense um the manufacturer i use i use a company here locally who has had relationships with um, entrepreneurs. They um, helped develop the SUBI and a lot of other products you might know. And um, they have the relationships in um, China and Asia. And they have a team over there that can um, is able to do quality control. The City Lou is designed to be shipped flat. And one of my criteria when we were designing it is that if I can put it together, Guaranteed anybody can put it together. Um, so that was one of the ends. The quality, I've been really fortunate to work in, um, with very high level, wonderful companies that are really proud of the quality of what they um, produce and um, just carry that over. That it was the quality of the city that was very, very important to me. It's a little heavy because, and that's intentional. It's not plastic, it could be a piece of furniture. It's very beautiful. Um, for what it is, um, but it's heavy. If you have it on the balcony or on a yacht, it's not going to move around. Um, if you get up on the 23rd, 25th floor, uh, a high rise, the wind can really whip things around. So it's got to be um, stable. And yeah. Wow. Brilliant. And this is a good example of how connections are so important and life 100% was a friend had told me well I, I guess it's uh, two years ago in November that um he had a yacht and there's a big international yacht show down in Fort Lauderdale and you need to go check that out because this would be perfect for the yachts 
So I got myself by myself. I was on a mission, went to the um, uh, Fort Lauderdale International Yacht Show. That was incredible. I've, I was blown away by the size of some of the yachts. But I met with several of the yacht brokers, showed them what I had. And if I had one person tell me this was a bad idea, Jim, I would have stopped a long time ago. But in doing that, getting on the plane, the um, a lady behind me who I worked with at Microsoft asked me what I was doing going down there. And I told her and what I had. She goes, I want one and you need to meet my husband. Well, I gave her my card. I thought I'd never see her again. On the way back, lo and behold, she was there with her husband. And he said, I would love to see you next week. When can we meet? And that was um, Dave from D International who helped me develop the new version of City Lou. And he and his team have just been amazingly supportive. They've been great on sourcing things out and bringing out our own version. So leveling it up of um, some pickup bags, not poop bags. We call them pickup bags. And um, my own go here spray to help training the dogs and then um, plan on bringing on more products, just leveling up. We love our dogs and our pets and they are part of our family. There's um, 69 people in the United States that have a dog and 49% of them live in a condo or apartments. Interesting. Huge, huge need. Yep. And they're family. So we need to spoil them just like we would spoil our kids. Or a spouse. Interesting. Anastasia, how did you sell not number two? That was your friend. And number three was your friend. How did you sell the first one to someone you didn't know or didn't know the friend, you know, weren't Kevin Bacon yeah. close to? That was so exciting. It was the best. I, I sold it on Etsy and ah, it was perfect, a la- perfect. Yep. It was a lady in New York and, um, you know, if you had one of those bells to ring every time you made a sale, I would have been ringing the bell. It was, you knew you had it. And then have, getting the great emails about, we've been looking for something like this. What a great idea. Um, a woman who has a toddler who was using, you know, just potty pads. It keeps the baby out. Well, you can only imagine. Um, it just, and then elderly dogs. I, I love the emails that I get from people. Um at an interior decorator goes, Oh my gosh, this is a wonderful design. So it is pretty. I'm, it is uh well designed. Thank yes. you. Yeah. I'm yeah, it turned out really, really well, which is important. You know, it's not the sexiest or most glamorous thing, but it's needed and it, it's nothing you can't avoid. So if we can make something discreet and sanitary. One thing I did learn though, <clears throat> as you as this whole thing journey has evolved is my dogs a girl so i never even thought about this the male dogs that lift their legs so we now include clips that attach to the sides that you can attach the potty pads up on the sides for dogs that lift their legs ah Um, yes so i can which i can't imagine having a potty pad or piece of grass in your apartment or condo and your dog's lifting its leg what kind of mess you have. So <laughs> it just keeps everything sanitary in your house too. And discreet. You could paint or put a 3d ish fire hydrant on the back wall of yeah. the enclosure. <laughs> That's what got you. It, and it actually doesn't even have to be a fire hydrant. I've thought of that. It could be a date, anything that. Or a tree trunk. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Anything they'll lift their leg to. So, um, I think from my understanding, dogs, male dogs have a particular preferred area or side in the city loo that they like to, um, relieve themselves. And so that's where you would, um, put the potty pad. I haven't quite figured out how to, you know, you can do the, you, they do sell the little fire hydrants or things that you can stick up in there as well. What's the real See? estate market look like in the Seattle area right now? I'm here in Atlanta and we are short supply. So things are selling at crazy prices really quickly. If it's any good at all, what's it like in Seattle? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. It's pretty much the same thing. We have, unfortunately, a lot of buyers that are waiting for the interest rates to go down. And I kind of, um, I believe that once they go down, um, the sellers they will start opening up their, you know, more homes will be on the market. But then we're going to have the bidding wars. And so the little bit of money that they might be saving on the interest rate, they with the bidding wars, they pay more you know, getting the house and, and it's really a hard way to buy a house. And it's, these uh, rates aren't that high. You and I are old enough to remember when rates uh, were 17%. 18%. These aren't I know, that I was, high. I mean, come on people. Are, it's, it's really normal. This is, it's, you know, and you know, we're back to thank goodness people being able to have an inspection on the house. Um, we have these new agents that got in thinking that they were going to, and they did, you know, make a bunch of money because it was easy. You didn't have to do an inspection. You waived everything. Well, now they don't even, you know, you're teaching them how to read an inspection report, which is so important. Um, I sell, I have a lot of um, a wide range of clients. I've been really blessed with that. Everything from the senior executives to my children are, and their um, peers are all first-time homeowners. And um, I've, I'm their mom, making sure that they aren't, you know, they're doing it right. And you need to check. You need a sewer scope. Even if it's a new home, you need a sewer scope. Um, so different things like that. So, But the market, um, as far as interest rates, it's normal. And we need more homes on the market, yes. And everybody's kind of hanging out i you know kind of waiting i think for the interest rates to go down and i don't see that happening in the near future but anastasia can i tell you the story of the buying the house that i live in now love to hear it i want to see if you've ever heard a story this crazy before okay okay so we i i told my wife i was a a divorced dad with two kids who live out of town. And so I had the best bachelor pad you can imagine the uh, <laughs> 14 foot ceilings, the interior brick walls, the, you oh, know, gosh. just gorgeous. Yep. Uh, and so anyway, we got married as I was telling you earlier and got that dog and everything. And eventually she wanted to move so we could have more kids and everything. And so I said, I was like, fine, I will leave my perfect place, but I'm not going to participate in looking. You find the house and I'll go look at it and we'll buy it. Okay. You get one shot. I'm going to look at one. She's uh, okay. Agreed. <laughs> and so okay. we hired Anastasia gets better. We hired our bartender Oh no! to be our real estate agent who had never sold or bought a house before, but was licensed, did have a license. 
And so they found a house and we loved it and got a, made an offer and negotiated and it was accepted. And on Easter morning, the, uh, agent called and said, uh, they've just backed out of selling you the house. And I was like, well, we're under contract. And the lady, <laughs> her response was, I'm 75 and I'm a widow. Sue me. Oh my God. So we got into a bidding war on that house and eventually lost. And oh. my agent felt so bad that he put a note randomly in a mailbox, two houses down on Easter at noon. And they called at 1230 and said, yes, we'd love to sell our house. And we went and looked at it at three o'clock and bought the house at three o'clock with no inspection, agreed to no inspection. They showed wow. us the issues, you know, uh, we bought it, uh, a week later, we got a note at the condo, our beautiful bachelor pad condo that said, don't buy the condo or don't buy that house. The pool is a money pit. And you could tell it was written in someone's left hand or a weird, you know, you could tell someone was trying yeah. to hide. And then we started getting telephone calls. Don't buy that house. Don't buy that house. Well, it turned out the wife didn't want to sell and she was a complete raging drunk and was trying oh, to convince no. us to not buy the house. But it, anyway, so eventually we decided, you know, to, you know, told her to, we really, you know, wanted the house and everything. And so we showed up to closing and it just felt weird. And my wife had been driving by every day and she's like, it just feels weird that something's not right. And so we went to closing and we were like, can we have the keys? And they were like, well, what do you mean? And we're like, well, you know, the keys, we want the keys. And they're like, but what do we do? You walk through, make sure it was empty. And okay. They hadn't started moving out yet and didn't realize oh, that I they had to move out. No way. They had been there See, for 52 years and oh, they seriously what? didn't understand that they had to leave and no one and had told them that. And your agent. Oh my gosh. See, there you go. <laughs> and at so, that point, get him out. We had a moving truck circling the neighborhood, you know, because we were at that point living at my parents' house. You know, there's nothing like being 40 something years right. old and living at your parents' house. That's you humbling. Know? And so, uh, <laughs> how did you get them out? They moved out the same day. Well, so, you know, it all got delayed and everything. And their yeah. movers were bringing stuff down the stairs and we were bringing stuff up throughout exterior windows and balconies and, and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. It turned oh out to God. be a disaster. And they left tons of like all of the debris, the stuff you don't want. They just left it, you know, yeah. and, uh, and we had to go and get stuff out of their moving van that they had sold us that they forgot that they had sold. Oh, you know, it cool. was just nightmare all so, around. So, yeah. Is a bartender still a real estate agent? <laughs> no, he's a uh, PA now, a, a doctor assistant, a, you know, a okay. physician's well, assistant. Well, hopefully he's a little more careful and thorough on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so, uh, but we love the house and, you know, uh, have Good. to re remodel Good. every surface. Good. Well, I love being a real estate. It's I love being there. You hear stories like that. That it's such a personal yeah. thing, you know. Yeah, it's so yeah. personal. 
and every, well, everybody's different and what their needs are different and every house is different. And so I could not be an accountant. That's for sure. <laughs> so I like variety and change and I love helping people and solving problems. So, and they both sort of do the same thing. Well, now you have an incredible business to build with all these auxiliary lines and products that you've thought of. It's an amazing story. Uh, so I'm, lo I'm absolutely loving that too. It's yep. I just wish that, I was, mm -hmm. How do we get us one of these, find out more about it. And if we decide to move to Seattle, buy a house from you. Okay. Loved that. Um, the city Lou website is, um, .com. We got the Lou. My daughter was in school in London and she helped out with the name. So there's where that comes from. And, um, we can purchase the city Lou. It comes in black and white. Um, the starter kit that includes the tray, the odor absorbing tray, um, two pieces of grass, artificial high-quality artificial grass and 100 potty pads is $3.99. Or if you just need the City Lou, the City Lou is a perfect size. It'll accommodate um, the fresh grass that you can purchase online or um, bark. So I made it so that what hopefully anything that products that your dog is used to already using, it can accommodate that. And um, and so, to, but to purchase the City Lou by itself is $2.99. And my for when you come to move to Seattle, um, it's amilesrealestate.com. And I'm here at Windermere in Kirkland, Washington at the Arrow Bay office. It's a great office. Fantastic. Anastasia, thank you so much for being with us. Amazing story. Congratulations. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for the time. I enjoyed it. And we're out of time for today, but you know what? Have a safe, fantastic weekend, everybody. After you buy yourself a city, Lou, go get some work done for next week. Get, uh, get ahead a little bit. Relax a little bit. Say hello to the spouse. Give them a hug. Take care. Go make a million dollars. Bye now. Yeah.